We're in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. The last time I talked two weeks ago, we uh, had half the fellowship gone, so uh, the Lord led me to talk about the teaching that I had uploaded to the Internet um, regarding Matthew, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Matthew, John 10.28, Romans 8, the last part of Romans 8, uh, and also John 3.16. If you haven't had a chance to watch it, I would encourage you to watch it. Um, it's about this issue of once saved, always saved, and, and uh, who truly is saved, who truly can't be snatched out of God's hand, that kind of stuff. Very important. Uh, if you, you know, most of us are dealing with these these verses day in and day out, whether on the streets, on the internet, wherever it may be, in person. Um, well, last time we talked about uh, Matthew, we were at Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 14. And just as a way of review, does anyone remember what was discussed for that teaching? Now, we don't know for sure if that was his thinking process. That's something I proposed to you about that he would have, he thought Jesus might have escaped. I think that's a reasonable conclusion to come to based on his response after he saw he was condemned and everything else. But uh, the rest is definitely explicitly taught in Scripture, but that's not explicitly taught there. Uh, now, when Judas gave the money back, did his guilt and shame go away? No. No. Um, and I proposed to you that he probably had a problem going back to the other apostles and admitting what he had done to them and facing them. And that's a great danger if you find yourself in sin. And you may look up like Judas said and say, how did I get to this place? And the answer is not to say, I'm going to end my life. The answer is not to say, I'm not going to humble myself to the point where I have to go confess to my other fellow apostles, what I have done. Now imagine if Peter had done that. If he had taken his life. We compared Peter and Judas a little bit last time and how Peter might have actually been worse than what he had done, denying three times, all that time in between to to finally not deny and, and, and stand up for what was true. And he was he declared, you know, boldly that he would go to death and you know he wasn't true about that. Imagine if Peter would have done that. There'd been no preaching on the day of Pentecost. He wouldn't have been the leader of the church that he was. All the things the Lord did through him would not have happened. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, Even though we believe in holiness and this fellowship, we also believe that we still have free will and we still could sin. Even great sin, heinous sin. I mean, this guy was with Jesus for three years. Peter was with Jesus for three years. He still denied him three times in a row. So we need to be very careful that we find ourselves in sin, not to try to take away the shame and guilt in a way that God doesn't prescribe. Shame and guilt does not go away by killing yourself. That just makes you endure the shame and guilt for all eternity. In hell. You know, there's only one way to get rid of shame and guilt. Humble yourself. Confess it. Forsake it. Get rid of it. Get it out. 
That's the only way to deal with it. What else did you remember from last time? Yeah, I think it's just a conflation of the two, and Jeremiah is the one name because he's the he's the major prophet. Zechariah is the minor prophet. We did talk about suicide a little bit, and how uh, youth pastors and pastors were trying to tell people that if they commit suicide, they're still Christians. What a dangerous thing to do! What a dangerous thing to do! Many people I've known who've taught that, and I've, I've actually dealt with people who've, who've committed suicide, who, and the people who knew them thought they were still Christians, and you know it usually had to do with a boyfriend or girlfriend breaking up with them, and wanting to kill yourself over that shows your idolatry, and your heart over that person, or whatever it was that was taken away from you. Um, the only thing that should make you feel that way is if God was taken away from you. That's the only thing that should make you feel that way. And of course, he promises he will never leave you nor forsake you for those who are walking in, in, in obedience to his commandments. Right, any, do you remember anything else from last time? There's no uh, time interval given on the, uh, the hanging on the tree with uh, Judas. It doesn't say that he has branch immediately broke. So there's a lot that's not said there. So we can't really say that it did immediately broke or did we just, we just say we don't know it's possible uh, that he could have been hanging there for hours before the branch broke but right. we just don't know that right we dealt with the issue of the scripture saying that he hung himself and that his his guts bust, bust open and how we can reconcile that and how it's not a contradiction there Necessarily, and there's many ways to reconcile that. You're, you're giving one. I, the one I gave was the possible one I gave was that he was hanging from a tree branch. It broke, and he fell down into the ravine. That's what it, uh, broke him open. Uh, but there's many ways to reconcile that. So it's the point, no matter which way you do, because it doesn't say explicitly what happened uh, with the timing. Like Brother Tracy is saying, is that there's other ways to reconcile it. There's uh, no reason to come to a conclusion. There's a contradiction there. He knew he was innocent. So Judas had a right view, uh, an accurate testimony concerning Jesus. But he still betrayed him and then killed himself. So having an accurate or a right view about Jesus, an accurate testimony about Jesus in the scripture does not mean that you won't sin or betray or even go to the point where you'll kill yourself. Okay, let's move on today. We'll start in verse 15 and go through verse 31. <clears throat> now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, "What do you want? whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? 
for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. <clears throat> While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was, was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twit when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and he reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Okay, in between verses 14 and 15, they deal with some chronology here about what is going on. There's something else that happened. You go to Luke 23. we found many times when we go through Matthews that sometimes details are filled in that others don't fill in. And this is one of those cases. We find in Luke 3, uh, 20, sorry, not 3, 23, starting in verse 6. In fact, we'll start in verse 5. After Pilate had found no fault in Jesus, the uh, Religious leaders were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, when when Pilate heard, beginning with Galilee, he said to himself, He heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And when the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been in enmity with each other. So you see here that uh, Pilate, in between verses 14 and 15 and Matthew 27, that Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. I want to point out some things here, besides giving you some chronological facts here of showing you what happened next. I want to point out some things here that uh, we see in verse 8 that he treated Jesus like he was some kind of sideshow to be entertained by. And oftentimes uh, in the open air, from possibly sincere Christians... We get the objection, look, people are just mocking you. They're just making fun of you. You're just a sideshow to them. Now, of course, if we're promoting that, then we need to examine ourselves. If we're promoting the sideshow mentality that I've discussed before in the fellowship by telling jokes and just having fun with the sinners. But if we're, if we're being sober-minded, we're being serious, we're, we're preaching the scriptures to them, preaching Christ and Him crucified, sin, righteous judgment, hell, you know, mercy, grace, the cross, we're preaching these things, and then they treat us like this, is it our fault? 
Of course not. Jesus is treated this way. There, he was hoping to, to see some miracles done by him. He treated him like some kind of sideshow, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, joker to be laughed about. And of course, Herod probably had those things as a, as a king. He probably had those things in his court. He probably had jesters who made him laugh, who entertained him. But Jesus was not going to submit to that. And uh, he even questioned him about many things. And he answered him, nothing. Jesus was silent. There's a time to be silent when it comes to the sinners, dealing with them. If they try to make everything a game, it's a time to be silent sometimes, to say nothing to them, to allow them to have their fun, and to realize you're not going to take part and to keep the atmosphere, to keep the uh, the surroundings sober-minded, at least as much as you possibly can. And we see there he was accused vehemently, of course, it would be false accusations in verse 10. Uh, and then Herod and his men treated him with contempt. They mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And this also proves that if people mock you, it doesn't mean you're necessarily doing something wrong. Did Jesus do anything wrong? Of course not. Did Jesus promote a sideshow mentality? Of course not. But these people treated him that way anyway. So next time someone open air tries to accuse you of that, even if they may be a sincere Christian because they've never seen this before, never seen how crazy it gets, how riotous the people get at times, you can point to the scripture. And say, look, Jesus dealt with this too. He dealt with mockers. He dealt with a riotous crowd. He dealt with uh, people who want to treat him like he was some kind of circuit side, so who, who wanted to come there just to laugh. No, we heard that. These people aren't here to listen. They're just here to laugh at you. Well, so what? Am I promoting them laughing at me? I'm not promoting them laughing at me. I'm being sober-minded and preaching to them the words of God. If they want to make fun of that or make fun of me while I'm doing that or mock me or scoff me or treat me like some kind of sideshow they can get a class and just laugh at, that's on them. That's on them. But as long as we're being sober-minded, as long as we're letting the Spirit lead us, then we have no fault in the situation. Now, why did, why did, why did Herod and Pilate become friends? Probably because... Pilate decided to respect Herod, or maybe that's the way Herod perceived it. Herod might have perceived it as a sign of respect that Jesus, that Pilate was sending Jesus to him, when really, from Pilate's perspective, it's really just a matter of trying to usurp responsibility from himself. I don't want to deal with this. Let Herod deal with it. It's his jurisdiction. Uh, so maybe that's why Herod decided to uh, become friends with, with Pilate that day. Okay, so going back to Matthew 27... This is the second time now that Jesus is before uh, Pilate. He's brought to him the first time, then he was sent to, to Herod, now he's brought before him again. And it says in verse 15, At the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. That right there tells you a lot about his character, doesn't it? Whatever the people wants me to release to them, I'll release to them. Is that the way pardon should work? I mean, pardon's a biblical thing. Pardon's a good thing at times. Does he have a criminal who's really changed? Or maybe there's doubt as to whether he's really guilty or not. There's a good reason for pardon at times. But to release to a, a crowd whomever they wished, is that a good reason to pardon somebody? It shows you he's not a just... Uh, and he, he's trying to gain popularity by doing what the people want him to do. Beware of that. Beware of trying to gain popularity, even with your friends even with brothers and sisters who are true ones, simply because you want to do what they want you to do. Beware of that. There's a pressure in that, friends. You need to obey God no matter the cost. And there is a cost at times. Imagine if Pilate would have obeyed. 
what he knows he should have done here. He probably would have been killed along with Jesus. That riotous crowd would have taken over and he probably would have been killed as well. <clears throat> but he wasn't willing to do that. At the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, uh, according to uh, Mark 15.7, Acts 3.14, Luke 23.19 uh, 20, and 25, he was a murderer, he was a robber, that's, that's John 18.40, and he was involved in a rebellion, according to Luke 23.2 and 5. And so, if you want those references, I can say them again. Uh, he was a robber, according to John 18.40. And according to Mark 15, 7, and Acts 3, 14, he was a murderer. And according to Luke 23, 2 and 5, he was a part of the rebellion, insurrection against the Roman government. And so there was this notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And, and I have to imagine that Pilate surely was thinking to himself, the Jewish people, I mean, these guys, these chief priests, you know, they, according to verse 18, they delivered him over because of envy. Pilate saw through that. But he had some hope for the crowd. He said, well, I'll present them this one notorious guy, this, this robber, this murderer, this, this insurrectionist, and I'll, I'll put a, Jesus their king. And surely they'll, they'll ask for Jesus. Now, you know, they shouldn't even have to ask for Jesus at this point because Pilate should just let him go. He's not guilty. But because he wants to appease uh, the crowd, he allows them to choose. And we see that they choose Barabbas. Now, why do they choose Barabbas? We see in verse uh, 20, it says, For the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that he should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the word for persuade there does not connotate necessarily an intellectual persuasion. Like you had some kind of logical discourse with them. They went around one by one and said, Listen, this guy is really wicked. He's doing this, that, this, and that. No, the word uh, means to incite, uh, to to urge on, to cause a riot, uh, to shake your hand at someone in a threatening way. That's what this word means. This Greek word here, this translated, is persuaded here. So don't get in your mind that the that the Pharisees, uh, these these chief elders and priests went around and were were discussing and and they and somehow the crowd was persuaded intellectually. No, that, that's not what happened. In fact, let's go to Mark's gospel for a second. And he uses a different Greek word, and it's a more strong word concerning uh, how they did it. Uh, it's Mark 15, let's see here. Yeah, verse 11. Uh, it said, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd. They so should rather release Barabbas to them. Now those who open air preach have probably experienced themselves many times where you have a calm and quiet crowd, good intellectual discussion. All of a sudden someone comes around and stirs them up and just blows up the crowd. And this is this is what they did. And when people do it, they don't use intellectuality, they don't they don't use they don't appeal to someone's mind or their will or their intellect. They appeal to their what? Emotions. They appeal to their emotions. When as we're preaching, we try to appeal to people's will Mind and intellect, so they can make a sound decision and count the cost to follow Jesus Christ, no matter the cost to themselves. But that's not what the chief priests and elders did. So you, you know, when someone tries to tap into someone else's emotion to get them to make a decision, you know there's something fishy going on there. There's something funny going on. If someone tries to tap into your emotions and to your feelings and not tap into your mind, your intellect, and your will, 
then you know something funny is going on here. They're trying to get you to be have a false sense of compassion or a false sense of mercy or, or trying to appeal to your, uh, to some kind of temptation within you. Then you know something's going on there. Something is wrong there, and that's what they did. That's that's the the mode they used, the method they used to get this crowd to turn on Jesus. And so this guy Barabbas. Um, interesting facts about him is I, as I compared the accusations that these elders and chief priests brought before Pilate as to why Jesus should be crucified. Turn to Luke 23 for a second. And we know that they didn't bring to Pilate this accusation of blasphemy because would Pilate have put him to death for that? No, that's Jewish law. So they they made some lies, Luke 23 and verse 2. And they began to accuse Jesus before Pilate, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So he, he's he's simply saying there that that uh, this Jesus is causing problems with Rome, the nation of Rome. He's perverting the nation, and he, he's trying to cause an insurrection. And in verse 5, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And so he's, they're, they're coming to Pilate trying to appeal to his Roman law and say, listen, look at what Jesus is trying to do to, the, to what you're supposed to do. He's causing problems with your nation. Now, now, was Jesus really doing those things? Of course not. He even told Pilate later on, he said, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If they was, my servants would fight. My servants aren't fighting, therefore it proves that my kingdom is not of this world. So he squashed that little objection, this little accusation they brought against him, and, and Pilate believed him. He found nothing wrong against him. Now, let's compare this to Barabbas. A known murderer, a known robber, a known insurrectionist. And when Pilate brings before them someone who's accused of insurrection, accused of things, and he doesn't find any fault, and then someone who he knows has fault, and they say, you know, I brought this Jesus before you because he's causing these problems of the nation, and who do they choose? The person who's actually causing the problems of the nation, which means they really didn't care about the Roman nation at all. It shows their real intentions of their heart. And the question becomes, we, we saw in John, let's go to John 19 for a second here. And this is later on in the discussion here. This is when they, they're still trying to get him to deliver them Barabbas, you know, back to them. The people are trying to get him to crucify Jesus. And he's having doubts about it. And we see in John 19 and verse 12 uh, that he sat in the, uh, sorry, verse 12 says, From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, who, who, who really would make Pilate more of an enemy of Caesar? Releasing Barabbas, who's a known insurrectionist, a murderer, and a robber, or releasing Jesus, who's caused no such problems? And so here you are. They, see, you have to beware, friends. People will bring false accusations against you or against them. They'll appeal to your emotions in doing so, not appeal to your mind, your will, and your intellect, and they'll try to get you to believe it. They'll try to get you to believe it. So you've got to be very careful that people... And they, they don't believe it themselves. They don't believe this themselves. They didn't believe that. They knew it was wrong. And they knew by getting Barabbas back to them that they were the ones who were the enemies of Caesar, if they want to be uh, clear about that. 
And then we have this issue in John 19.7. Now, this is after, of course, um, Jesus has been flogged. He, and we'll get to that here in a second. He's been scourged. He's, uh, he's got before Pilate for the third time now. And we'll go through more of John 19 here in a minute. But just because we're on the subject of Barabbas, I want to touch on one more thing here. Is that once they get him to basically commit and they have the crowd on their side, now they go back to the original accusation against Jesus. Now they know they have the upper hand. Now they're willing to tell the truth. In John 19.5, he says, The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. So that's the original accusation, blasphemy. But here's the question. Barabbas is a murderer. Are murderers supposed to die according to their law? They sure are supposed to die according to the law, according to Exodus. Go read it for yourself. Exodus 21. Um, they're supposed to die, but do they care about that? No, they're very, being very picky and choosy here, aren't they? Very inconsistent. And so, when it comes to comparing Barabbas with the Jewish leaders and the people, it's obvious that they really don't care about what they're saying. The words that are coming out of their mouth have no meaning whatsoever at this point. All they want, and what it boils down to, is I want Jesus dead. That's all it boils down to. Nothing else. Just Jesus dying, and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll lie. I'll bring false accusations. I'll twist what the, the actual uh, accusations are around against him. I'll have a murder released to me just to get this guy out of the way, just to kill him. And so let's go back to Matthew 27 here. It's, yeah, exactly. Calling good evil and evil good. And so he asked them, they want Barabbas. He knew they had him because of envy. He was hoping to appeal to the crowd. We see in verse 19 that his wife had a dream, saying that it had nothing to do with this just man, this upright man, this innocent man. For I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, he didn't really seem to, and once again, this is not, we're not in John 19 yet. This is the second encounter with him at this point. John 19 is the third encounter with Pilate. We'll get to that here in a second. But there's a second encounter, and we see at this point, maybe it had an effect on him that his wife had a dream, or maybe it didn't. But I think it'll have an effect later. we get back to John 19, the third encounter, <clears throat> and we'll see some more about how he responds when he hears the, the chief priests and elders say something. Uh, so she had this dream about him, and she even warns him to have nothing to do with him. Uh, but the chief priests and elders, they had stirred up the crowd, they incited the crowd, they urged the crowd to destroy, to act for Barabbas and to destroy the Jesus. Uh, the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Paul said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. This is not a just trial. This is not a fair trial. They're not on jury. He is the judge, and he's allowing them to decide for him. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has been done? But they cried out all the more. Can you reason with a riotous, frenzy crowd? You can't reason with them. You can't. It's it's impossible. Um, and he, he saw that. He said when he saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Now, does that really make him innocent? Performing some kind of ceremony and saying I'm innocent, does that really make him innocent? Is he performing his duty as a <clears throat> as a law official? That makes him more guilty. And he, he's a coward when it breaks down to he fears the crowd. You know, Judas, I, I, I believe, feared coming before the apostles. <clears throat> the chief priests feared the crowds. Then they got the crowds on their side, and Pilate feared the crowds. All this fear going on here. 
We know God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, though, right? But power, love, and a sound mind. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. Now, this might be prophetic here. Um, because what happened in AD 70? The worst thing that's ever happened to Israel. You know, this, this place was destroyed. People were cannibalizing themselves, eating their own children. And so they received, because they called for Jesus' death, they received their just due. And even worse than that, we'll be in hell if they didn't repent. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered them to be crucified. Now this, in, in the gospel accounts, nowhere in any of the gospel accounts does it give detail about what happened in the scourging. It just gives the word scourge. Um, which is really, uh, the word, it would, if it was transliterated, it would be flogged. That would be the transliteration of the Greek word. Uh, now, you have to understand what the Roman people did when someone was sentenced to death. This is typically what they did. They would scourge someone, okay? And they would have a whip, a leather whip, okay, usually with a, a wooden handle. And the whip would be probably about that long. The whip, whip strands made out of leather whips would be about that long each, okay? Uh, and within the whip would be pieces of sheep bone and lead, lead balls, metal balls inside, you know, attached to this whip, per, you know, as you go down. And the way they would flog someone or scourge someone, they, they would, they would be completely naked. Uh, they would be tied to a post standing up, you know, maybe in the crowd position a little bit like you're sitting on a chair. And, uh, yeah, whipping post. And typically they would have two people doing this at once and they would go to the left side, to the right side, to the left side, to the right side. And as this, this, uh, the ball, the web, lead balls hit the back, it makes a contusion, obviously. It makes a, a bruise. And as the bones hit the back, they're tearing at the flesh of the back to the point where you begin to see even bones and organs exposed. Okay. Now in Jewish law, uh, and, or in Jewish tradition, in Jewish law, they, they would do the 40 minus 1, which is the 39 lashes. But Romans had no such law. They'd whip you until they felt like they were done. And usually they'd whip you until you were just about dead. Uh, you would go into a state of shock. You may die even before you get to the cross because of loss of blood. It would make you much weaker once you got to the cross, which means you wouldn't last very long on the cross because you're on the cross. Remember, we talked about this. You're, you're like this, and you're in the uh, exhale position. In order to inhale, you have to push up on your legs, which are nailed to the cross, in order to get some kind of get some air in your lungs, and so if someone's whipped that badly, they're not going to have much strength left. They're not going to have much power left to push themselves up. And so he was scourged, and this is what it, it means to be scourged, and um, very horrible punishment, very horrible punishment. And uh, we see in Isaiah fifty three five that he was wounded for our transgressions; he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. He would literally have stripes down his back from all the whipping he received. There'd be one on each side, and they would whip downward, and he would whip downward on this side, and he would downward on this side. And uh, I know many of you may have seen the movie The Passion of Christ. There's lots of Roman Catholic garbage in there, but to, to weed through that and see what happened to Christ when he was whipped, I believe that is very accurate if you can read through the rest of it and just watch that part. Very accurate, I believe, to what actually would have happened to him. Now, there may have been some kind of thing in there where he stood up. I mean, if you remember the movie, he kind of was he was down on the ground and he stood up and he... I don't know if that happened. The scripture doesn't say that. But he the way in which he was whipped 
would have been accurate. He would have been mocked afterward. That's, that's typical of Roman flogging, what would have happened in those days. And most, most death penalty prisoners would have gone through this, with the exception of maybe Senate officials, women, children. Uh, they wouldn't have gone through that. But men went through it almost every single time before they were put to death, no matter what the mode of death was. Uh, so when you see scourging here, we don't have the details, but that's what we know from history. And, um, you know, First Peter 2.24, and, uh, of course, if you go to Isaiah 53, it would use the same Greek word here, but First Peter 2.24 gives a word, um, just turn to it real quick, I think it's translated as bruised, uh, it's the stripes. It says in uh, 1 Peter 2.24, by whose stripes you were healed. And the word stripe there uh, literally means to bruise, to leave welts, uh, to leave extreme uh, marks on the body from punishment. That's what it means. And uh, he went through this suffering for us. He didn't have to go through it, um, but he went through it for us. And he was scourged for that. And so we see this this one word scourge, and that's that's what it means. So when you, when you see that word, you, you need to think to yourself that this is what Jesus went through. He didn't have to go through that. Okay, so now for verses twenty seven through thirty one, I want to turn to a more detailed version of this in John nineteen, and also in John nineteen. Not more detailed about what happened there with what the soldiers did, but more detail as far as what happened right after that. We'll see the third encounter. Because Matthew doesn't give the third encounter. Because after the soldiers, after he was scourged and he was mocked with the crown of thorns and the robe and the staff and punched and spit, and uh, he came before Pilate again. And Matthew's gospel does not record that. So I want to read that to you here. Uh, John 19, starting in verse 1. We'll see the mocking first. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put him on him a purple robe. And by the way, just to, just as a side note here, these thorns wouldn't have been like the ones you see out in the woods out here. These little tiny, they've been really long thorns. I have, I actually have a crown of thorns at my house that would have been similar to the one they would have put on Jesus' head. They were long thorns. Okay, so if they would have pushed it down to his skull, it caused lots of bleeding. Um, they said to him, "Hail, King of the Jews!" And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you. At this point, Pilate's probably trying to, once again, appeal to the crowd. Look what Jesus looks like now. Look what I've done to him. Isn't this sufficient, so to speak? Isn't what I've done to him, whipped him, beat him, mocked him, put a crown through him, isn't this sufficient? And Of course, the crowd wasn't sufficient with that. Uh, That you may know that I find no fault in him. Well, if you found no fault in him, Pilate, then why did you have him scourged? Why did you have him mocked? And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. That's a good proof for the Trinity right there. Now, why was he put to death according to the Jewish leaders? He made himself a Son of God? Because Muslims would say, well, Jesus was the Son of God the same way we're a Son of God. No, he is the definite article, the Son of God. He made himself the Son of God, and that's why he deserves to die. It's blasphemy. That's why the Jews want them to put it up. That's the real reason. That's a good proof right there for the uh, for the Trinity. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Now, see, he heard from his wife earlier in the second encounter, I had a dream about this just man. Have nothing to do with him. Now, can Jesus, if he's just a man, can he make Pilate's wife have a dream about him? No. So, I'm not going to suppose, the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm going to tell you, I think the, the dream was probably from God. And so he hears his wife having a dream from God. Well, maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe you're just dreaming about him or something like that. His wife, maybe she's, you know, she's a woman. She's, she's maybe a little emotional about this. And, and then he hears he made himself the son of God. Now he's more afraid. Now he's more afraid. Uh, and he went to the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Paul said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And now look, listen to, look at Pilate's response to that. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. See, he knew. Pilate knew. He knew. He sought, but the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Then the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And so we see all throughout this, as we're going through this discussion, what the Lord was leading, putting on my heart, we've gone through the chronology now, the events, you've seen what's happened in truth, is this issue of courage and fear. You see, Pilate lacked courage. And he was fearful. And so I want to talk to you just for a little bit about about these two things, about fear and courage. Let's look at Luke 12 first first and let's look who jesus says we should fear luke chapter 12 and verse 4 this fear in the world friends fear to be had fear to be tempted to give into because we have the truth and the most of the world's against it luke 12 4 through 6 and i say to you my friends do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do but I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Guess I say to you, fear him. So, who we're supposed to fear? Of course, I think most of you know Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. We quit all the time in the open air. You know, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is man's all. What is your all? Fearing God and keeping his commandments. So, who should we fear? We should fear God. We should fear God. And so there is a, a proper fear. A, and as Christians, if we're walking in obedience to God, it's not a fear of, of going to hell. It's not a fear of judgment. And we'll look at that here in a second in 1 John 4. But it's, it is a reverential awe fear. And we hear sinners say that in the open air that they shouldn't fear God. But listen, if you're sinning every single day, you should have that kind of fear of God. If you're not living in obedience to God, you should have a, a trembling fear before Almighty God, who has the power to cast him to hell. That's who you should, you should fear him like that. 
So who 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 should we fear? We should fear we should fear God. Second uh, Timothy one seven. I quoted it a little while ago, at least partially. So there is this for for the saints of God. There is a reverential awe fear, or like to to the fear my my children would have. There's a love there. They they want to obey me out of love for me, and because of the relationship we have together. But they know if they disobey, there's something to be feared, and that that partially keeps them from disobeying, especially at a young age when they don't have the comprehension that maybe some of the older children do. That there's a there's a fear there in that that if I do this, this will happen. But they know as long as they're doing what is right, they don't have that kind of fear towards me. There's a reverence, a respect for me as their as their father. So First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy one seven says. Uh, for God is not giving us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, for those who go out and evangelize on the streets, you're especially going to be susceptible to fear. There's definitely a fear there, especially if there's a large crowd and you've never dealt with that before. And you've, you've dealt with it many times. There's a temptation to give in to fear. And God allows that for a reason. But you need to know the source of that fear is not God. The source of the fear is your enemy because he would love you to keep your mouth shut, to say nothing, to give into it, to shrink back, to backslide. But God allows it for a reason. He allows us to depend upon him more. She'll trust in him more. So you can say, oh God, help me. Help me, Lord. I want to speak the truth for you, Lord. I want to stand up for you. I want to, I don't want to shrink back. Help me, Lord. And he is near to those who cry out to him with that in that way. He is near to those. So if there's a time that's going to happen in the future, it will come, friends. When that happens in the future, you need to cry out to God. Just just one little prayer and begin to open your mouth for God and he will give you the strength and the courage you need. And so we, we, God is not giving, we should fear God, but he does not give us a spirit of fear. Okay. Uh, we see in Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Most of you know this verse, but it's good to know the reference and where it actually is in the, in the scriptures. Proverbs 29 and verse 25. It says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If you want to be safe, fear the Lord. If you want to be trapped in a snare, then you give in to the fear of man. So the fear of man brings a snare. And then we see in... Um, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And verse 35. We see this situation where they're on the, they're on the sea and Jesus is sleeping calmly. It says in verse 35, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitudes, it took him along in the boat as he was, other little boats were also with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. And then awoke him, and they awoke him, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and sea, and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to him, Why are you so fearful? How is that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So fear of situations, fear of circumstances can be as a result of lack of faith. Lack of faith. 
a lack of trust in God, a lack of uh, that He's going to get you through it. But when God puts you in a situation where you're you're tested, He provides the means to get you through it every single time, every single time. Uh, Matthew fourteen. Let's see another source of, of fear here. We so we, we've seen with. The situation with Pilate, that there was a source, there was a fear of man, fear of the crowds, uh, fear of losing popularity, maybe even fear of losing his job. Uh, we saw with Judas a fear of facing the fellow apostles. He had worldly sorrow. We saw with Peter, he had a fear of man, of facing death. We saw the Pharisees, had a, they were scared of the people. Uh, in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28, uh, Jesus calls Peter to walk on water, says in verse 20, and Peter answered to him and said, Lord, it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to, to go to Jesus. When he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stood on his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So he lacked faith. But what was the reason? He took his eyes off of Jesus just for a minute, began to look at a situation surrounded around him, and saw how tumultuous it was, how boisterous it was, and he began to sink. So he had a fear of situations as well. But the reason why we see here is because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Now, the people in the boat a minute ago in, in, Matt, in Mark 4, uh, we saw that they began to fear because they were looking at the, the what was the situation was as well. The w- water was coming into there. But if they would have looked at Jesus instead of the water and saw that he was sleeping and maybe would have attempted to imitate him, do you think they would have continued to lack faith? think they would have continued to have fear in the midst of their situation? No, I don't think so. And so we see some of the, the, the sources of our fear. Um, let's go to first, uh, first John chapter four. I just mentioned this a second ago. <clears throat> Well, this is this is actually a legitimate source of fear here. We see that fear of situations, surroundings, we shouldn't have that. Okay, shouldn't have that. Fear of man, we shouldn't have that. It's a snare. Uh, fear of 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 lacking faith, we shouldn't have that. Okay, uh, but if this is our circumstance, we should have fear. I mentioned a second. First John four seventeen. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So what are the conditions to not being fearful on the day of judgment, but having boldness on the day of judgment? Is that as he is in this world, as he was in this world, so are we. So if we're sinning every day in this world, are we as he was in this world? No. But verse 18, there is no fear in love. So that's the point I'm making here. The kind of fear we should have towards God if we are walking his way. It's not a fear of, I'm going to go to hell. Because we're walking in his ways. We have no reason to fear that. If my children are obeying me, they have no reason to fear the rod, to fear being spanked, to fear being disciplined. There's this love relation. There's no breaking between us here. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. There's no reason to fear if you have perfect love, because as he was, so are you in this world. Did you just fear his father? He had no reason to fear his father. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Because, oh, I, I missed, missed the part there. Let's start again at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. 
But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So he's saying here, if you're not as he is in this world, you have reason to fear. You have reason to fear. Because there's, there's some sin in your life. That's a legitimate reason to fear God. If you backslide into sin, that's a legitimate reason. Until you come to repentance, that's a legitimate reason to fear God. You know, I, I, when I was a new new believer, I, you know, I, I attempted to read the scriptures myself and read it through quite a bit and led astray for a while by some false teachers. And I had this one false teacher, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Charles Stanley, who said that uh, if, if you sin as a Christian and, and you feel condemned, that's the devil. That's the devil condemning you. Uh, no, no friends, that's not the devil condemning you. That's your own conscience, which has been given to you by God, that's condemned you. And, and no matter what, I, I used to believe once they've always said, some of you might not know that, I used to believe in that for a period of time because of this false teacher. And even, when I would sin at that point in time, my heart would condemn me, my conscience would condemn me, the Holy Spirit would condemn me, and I would repent right away, I'd get it, you know, get it out of my life. But, you know, even though the words come out of my mouth, once they've always said, it wasn't comporting with my experience and what the scripture said. And so there was something going on there. So that's a legitimate reason to, to, to fear God. Is If there's sin in your life, you should be afraid if there's sin in your life. Because the result of sin is possible judgment if you don't repent. That's the result of it. Um, let's go to, to Psalm 34 uh, and verse 4. So how how are we delivered from fear? Uh, if if we sense that there's fear, well, verse four gives us the answer. I sought the Lord, and He heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. So you, I said a minute ago, it's in open air. You, you start to feel this fear, or maybe it's not in the open air. Maybe it's just you know, that's something we experience a lot. That's using an example. Maybe it's a fear you're dealing with a certain person, a certain situation, or standing up for righteousness in a certain situation. Maybe that's what you're feeling fear over. Or maybe you feel fear of telling the truth because of the repercussions that may happen because of telling the truth. Uh, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. If you are planning to do what is right before God, you have no reason to fear. And if you feel a temptation of fear of coming on you, then you need to seek the Lord and he will deliver, he will hear you. He, he wants to deliver you from this temptation of fear. He doesn't want you to have fear. It doesn't come from him. He's not the source of it. And he wants to deliver you from those fears. And he will. If you if you seek the Lord, he will hear you and he will deliver you uh, from your fears. And then go to John 14. And we'll see what, what Jesus leaves us with in, in this world. John 14 and verse 27. It says, uh, Peace... I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But I give you peace. You know, if, if there's confusion in your life about a certain situation, it's not from God. It's not from God. He gives peace. Peace I leave with you. If there's confusion, it's not from God. And the source of that confusion, you can assure, is not God. It is not of God. 
I don't give to you as the world gives you. The world's peace, the world's peace lasts for a very short period of time. Every treaty that's ever been signed that I'm aware of has been broken. Because men have wickedness in their hearts. And if they're not at peace with God, are they going to be at peace with men? No, but when you're at peace with God, then you can, it's always within you. And what depends upon you, you can strive to be at peace with men. So God doesn't give that kind of, he gives a peace that is ever, it lasts, is a peace that Paul says passes understanding. And that's what it is when you walk in the truth. It's a peace that passes understanding. That even in the midst of crowds railing at you, you can have peace. Even in the midst of the worst circumstances, you can have peace. And so we've seen fear, we've seen the, what the sources of fear are, uh, why we shouldn't fear, the kind of fear we should have, legitimate reasons for fear, what God gives, a source of fear. And now I want to look at just courage and boldness. Because these these men who, we, who we've who looked at over the last you know four or five times I've taught, the Pharisees, Peter, Judas, and Pilate, all had fears that were... That were not biblical fears. They were not from God. They should have had courage. They should have had boldness. Now, the Pharisees, of course, their their fear was because they were in sin, uh, and they, they I mean they feared the crowds, but uh, they weren't doing what was right. Um, so let's look at uh, let's define courage and boldness first. Uh, courage is not the absence of potential fear, not the absence of temptation to be fearful. But the strength to overcome. And physical courage is always based upon moral courage. A reliance on the presence and power of God and a commitment to his commandments. Let me say that again. Courage is not the absence of the temptation of fear. It's not the absence of potential fear. But the strength to overcome the temptation to be fearful and the potential to be fearful. Physical courage is based upon moral courage. If I went out to the open air and I was living in sin or some kind of secret sin that no one else knew about, I would have no assurance. I would have no courage. I would have no boldness. If a huge crowd was around me, I'd probably want to flee from it simply for the fact that I would have no courage. I had no moral courage. So physical courage is always based upon moral courage, a reliance on the presence and power of God. But someone who's in sin can't do it, can they? They can't rely on you can't rely on the presence and power of God and being in sin at the same time, because it's, it's dependent upon a commitment to His commandments. So physical courage is always dependent upon moral courage, and I would say it's in proportion to it. The deeper you go with God and your trust with Him and your reliance upon Him. The, the less frequency there is between the last time you sinned and the time you're dealing with the situation of potential of fear, the more courage you're going to have, the more boldness you're going to have because of that. Let's just look at the uh, Proverbs, I mean, sorry, Psalm chapter 27 and verse 1. Psalm 27 and verse 1. <clears throat> So we're working off this definition of courage here. It says in Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now if, that, if you can say that, you can say the second part. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, my, is the strength of my life. Now if you can say that, you can say the second part. Of whom shall I be afraid? I've said this many times. With God on your side, and no one else, you're still in the majority. 
Of whom shall you be afraid? Of whom shall you be afraid? Uh, Psalm 118 and verse 6. Basically, just I just paraphrase this, I guess. The Lord is on my side. If you can say that, you can say this next part. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can he, if the Lord is on your side, what can he do to you? The worst he can do is kill you. Which, we know Christ taking the sting of that away. This is promotion. And then we, uh, in Acts 4.13, after... It was Peter and John here. And I want you to notice the source of their boldness here. And even the even the ungodly realized this. Acts 4.13 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, their, their boldness wasn't dependent upon some intellectual knowledge they had. Their boldness was dependent upon they had been with Jesus. That's the source of your boldness, friends. You had been with Jesus. It's not a matter of having correct doctrine. That's the source of your boldness. You had been with Jesus. That's the source of boldness. Being with Jesus. Knowing he's on your side. Proverbs 28.1. I've got that one. The wicked flee... When no man pursues. So who flees? The wicked flee when no man pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now do they pursue? Do lions pursue? Yeah, they pursue elephants sometimes. Giraffes sometimes. To to eat this animal. To feed the pride. If they'll do that for food. Have you ever ever seen a giraffe kick something before? It's a deadly kick. One kick from a draft can kill you. You know? An elephant. How'd you like to be set on by that? These, these, these bulls they have in Africa have these huge horns. I've seen the horns go up inside a lion and the lion died because of it. Now if animals, lions, are that bull at the risk their lives for food, how bold shall we be, should we be when we have the gospel of Jesus Christ? How bold should we be when we have God on our side? How bold should we be when we've been with Jesus? Of course, if you can say you've been with Jesus. You have to have been with Jesus, friends. He's a source of your boldness. If you can't say you had been with Jesus that day and spent time with him, surely you're going to lack boldness. You're going to lack the boldness you need. The boldness comes from him. And let's go to the story of of Moses and Joshua here for a second. Deuteronomy 31. Moses is coming to the end of his reign as leader over Israel. Deuteronomy 31. And we read verses 1 through 8. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. He said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crossed over before you, just as the Lord has said. 
And the Lord will do to them as he had done to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites in their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you. They may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is one who goes before you. He will, he will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So the source of courage, of boldness, of strength for Joshua was God. The source of strength and boldness and courage for the children of Israel was God. The trust that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. That he was going to give these people this land into their hands. And I want you to see this, this picture, okay? There's a picture being presented here. Joshua in, in the Greek and the Hebrew is the same as the word made for Jesus. Same. He goes before us, friends. He leads us to the promised land. But we must continue to follow him. We must be strong and of good courage. There's going to be times coming up, friends, where you're going to be tempted to be fearful, tempted to be dismayed, tempted to turn back because of the fear of man, which brings us near, because of the fear of popularity. I've seen it, friends. The fear of popularity is a great fear. It's a great temptation. It's nice to have most people on your side. It's nice to not be called a heretic. It's nice to be called orthodox. But those things don't matter in the light of the truth. But Joshua, Jesus, he leads us. He was strong and of good courage. Here's our example. Look what he went through. Have you resisted to the point of shedding of blood yet? No, but he did. And he leads us in. But the source of the strength was God himself. And trusting in him that he will do what he says he will do. And he won't leave us nor forsake us. Now can we leave him? Yes, we can. We can leave him. And what happened to the Israelite people who left him before this group is going in now? They were left where? Outside the promised land. They were left there to die. They did not inherit it. Go to Joshua chapter 1. This is the Lord speaking directly. Directly to Joshua right now. Starting in verse 1 of Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am given to them, the children of Israel. Every place that a sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant command you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? 
Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see all those conditions in there, friends? There's conditions in there. Same conditions I've given you throughout this teaching, this last part of it. That if you want to be strong and of good courage, it has to be based upon your trust in Him, your being with Him, trusting His promises to you, and you're walking in His ways. If you're not walking His ways, you have reason to fear. You have reason to fear. But fear does not come from God. The fear, even even the fear to to you're going to go to hell because you're in sin. That doesn't the source of that is not God. The source of that is your sin. That's the source of that. If you didn't have that sin in your life, you wouldn't be fearful in that way. You wouldn't be fearful in that sense. But if you are spending time with Jesus, if you are trusting in His promises, if you do not lack faith, and you look upon Him and keep your eyes upon Him instead of your situation, your surroundings, no matter what's going to come your way, no matter what the source of it is, God is going to get you through it. But be strong. You see how many times God told him this over and over again? Be strong. Be very courageous. And you'll make it through. You'll make it to the promised land. And Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, he will lead us into that promised land. So let us not be like Judas. He was fearful to admit his sin, I believe, to his fellow apostles. Let us not be like the Sanhedrin who were fearful of the people because they were fearful of crowds. Let us not be like Peter who had the fear of man, had the fear of death. Let us not be like Pilate who had the fear of losing popularity and losing maybe a position in this world. Let us fear God with Christian reverential awe fear, realizing that if we go back to our sin, we have ever reason to fear him with great dread because of what he promises to those who don't persevere to the end. Alright, well I'm going to stop there and we'll open the floor up to discussion. Those who have questions or want to add to anything that's been said. Yeah, well, you look at uh, Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-six. It says, "Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified." And you see verses twenty-seven, thirty-one, where the soldiers mocked Jesus, and right after thirty-one, we didn't get to thirty-two, but that's when he's led up to Golgotha to be crucified. So between thirty-one and thirty-two is where this situation in John nineteen would appear. After he has been scourged, after the soldiers have mocked him, it's the third appearance before him. No, that's the only one I'm aware of that does that. Yeah. Yeah, all the other ones basically talk about the scourging and then it goes straight to the, him going to Golgotha. A skeptic would see that as an inconsistency in point. It's part of the Bible, not Yeah, sure. Okay. Sean? Uh, just kind of like an idea of what you, what you do with the preaching. Uh, normally you deal with like the city of Spain or dealing with like an atheist or agnostic, but uh, with the Pharisees, how they, they said things they didn't really believe. You hear that with, you also hear that with sinners too, but yeah. mainly atheists still try to be consistent with positions. They're not really living that way. Right. They don't believe what they're saying, really. Right. Most of them don't, which is bad. Right. 
right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Tracy? Yeah, uh, you were saying before that in the Roman government, I guess, uh, when someone was sentenced to, to death, I guess, on the cross, they were, are you saying that they were always scourged? Or is it something that happens sometimes? Or? No, what I, what I read is that there are exceptions, of course, for women, for people who are high officials, but uh, uh, for the most part, according to Hitler, now this is not found in the Bible. Right. I'm going over secular history now. Right. Uh, according to secular history, they were they were scourged in this way. So now, now the 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 extremity of how off, how much they were scourged, like I said, that's, there's nothing in the, like a law of how many times they be whipped, like the Jewish pe- people have. But uh, yeah, that's my that's my understanding of it of history. So the thief and the I guess the other I guess he might have been the murderer. The other guy. No, the other two were thieves as well. They were both thieves. Yeah. Uh, they were they were scourged as well. Then I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just telling you what his, what history says. I was also looking at, uh, I didn't hear you bring this one out, is Isaiah 52, um, 14. Uh-huh. With the plucking out the beard? or It says, as many were astonied uh, at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and right. his form more than the sons of men. Yeah. That, that's about Jesus, right? Yeah, Isaiah fifty fourteen. Just as as many were astonished at you, so his visit was marred more than any man; his form more than so that, sons of men. That, that would refer to the type of scourging that Jesus received. Yes, I agree with that. He was marred more than any man ever has, has ever been marred. Right, in Isaiah fifteen verse six. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So that really sums up his scourging, and then what happened right after that with the mocking from the Roman soldiers. Uh, yeah, we don't know the extremity. Like I said, we don't know the extremity of of, of the other times they would scourge somebody, but uh, it's it's pretty bad no matter how how much you get it done to you, you know. Uh, whether it was Jesus or. I guess if that's true, that gives more strength to, to Pilate saying that I have found no fault in him because he didn't confess anything. Yeah, I've never never heard that before. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
That's 53.7. Isaiah 53.7. Well, with that, with that whip, that would that would be the result. I mean, with pieces of bone and. And he he denied the faith before he got shot. Yeah. All they have. It's all they have, according to them. Right, survival to finish them. The assumption is that death is bad. But that's not bad for the saint. That's the assumption. When they ask those hypothetical questions, death's not bad. That's a good thing for the saints. And God takes pleasure in it. I was just going to say, uh, the bad thing about that type of argumentation is they're really asking you to change yeah. uh, what you believe based on experience Situation based effects. on what the scriptures actually teach. Right. So they're, they're appealing to your experience and trying to get you to forsake what you know of the word God. So 
That's what I usually determine when they ask me that. So no matter what experience you give me, I'm just going to interpret that experience in light of the word, and that's the way I'm going to go with it. The only way you're going to change my view on something is to show me what does the word actually teach. Yeah, they're trying to get you. They're trying to appeal it to your your love for your wife and children, and, and to disobey God, right. uh, and trying to get you to engage in situational ethics, right. which the Bible is completely against. Yeah, yeah. He, he was brother Ron brought it up. Conversation he had at EKU. Yeah, I was watching Wiki uh, uh, Pratney last night. He was uh, preaching on fear, mm. and he actually uh, brought up the exact same verse that he brought up in Mark uh, chapter four. Okay. Uh, whenever uh, Jesus rebuked the wind and said, right. "Peace be still," and he said that the Greek word there is just a single word for "peace be still." It's not "peace be still." Right. It's just one word. He said he, he, he kind of likens it to, uh, like when you tell a dog to heal right. or silent. Right. You know, and right. he said that's what he did to the wind. He's just like silent. And then, the, then the wind obeyed. And then that the people that were on the ship, they were already afraid of the storm. Now he just says this one word and then stops. Now they feared him even more exceedingly. Because the thing they were fearing was stopped by the thing right, right. they weren't fearing. He was able to stop it with one word, and it just obeyed. And that's when they say, well, who is this man that the, the winds could right. obey him? Right. So he, he kind of brought that out. I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. The way he said that. I'm curious how big the boat was that he'd be down. I, I know you always see these little fishing boats in the little movies, and they're always really small boats. But obviously, it must have been a bigger boat than that. he was down for us. Yeah, the Middle Eastern fishing boats are actually pretty large. I mean, I'm supposing they're, they're, they're kind of the same design 2,000 years later, but they are very primitive looking, and uh, they're, they're probably 25, 30 feet long. So you figure if they've got, they're throwing out nets and pulling back yeah, yeah. nets into the boat, that's going to be a big boat. Yeah, yeah, you always see these little clips, like, you know, even in cartoons or movies, you know, like that. It's, it's always a little, little dingy boat that are in there pulling. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's, it's kind of like that, the Noah's Ark boat with the dress head sticking out the top. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> I just have a hard time putting that image out of my head. I'm like, that was going to be a bigger boat than that. Because I think I've seen even a clip of this of that scene, and Jesus is not really slipping out of the stern. It's the little head part of the boat, the little dinghy. He's just kind of under that part. So I'm like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, anybody else? That's the Hebrews, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I guess two.
It's also a Hebrews. It's also Hebrews two six through nine. 